It is good to praise the Lord for what is true about Him. Of course, there's a long list of what's true about the Lord. And we could praise the Lord for His faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is shown in that He makes promises and He keeps them. He forms covenants and He does not forsake them. The Lord is faithful. We could sing about the wisdom of God. This is true of Him. The depths of the knowledge of God no one can fathom. The height and the scope of His understanding are unmatched. You could put all the wisdom and insight of every human being who has ever lived in any era and pile it all on one side of the scales and outweighing that will be the wisdom of God. We can sing about the goodness of God. This is true of the Lord. There is no glimmer of unrighteousness in Him. No deficiency in His character. Every good and delightful thing in the universe is a goodness that derives from God and that reflects His transcendent, untainted goodness. We can sing of His goodness. We could do what Psalm 21 does. And we can sing about the power of God. The first and the last verses of Psalm 21 frame the chapter. And they are about the power of the Lord, the strength of the Lord. Believers can rejoice in the fact that God is almighty. I heard a pastor say one time, he's not most mighty. He's almighty. He can do whatever pleases him. What is impossible for man is not impossible for God. He makes all things from nothing and He sustains all that He's made. He governs the farthest reaches of the universe with total sovereignty. We can sing about the power of God. It is good to praise the Lord for what is true about Him. His unmatched power is a concern in the opening and closing verses of this psalm. Why does the psalm major on the power of God? It is certainly majored on the other things prior to this. His wisdom, His faithfulness, His goodness. The Psalms celebrate these things that are true. What is it about the power of God that has captured the psalmist's mind here? Well, in Psalm 20, the psalmist prayed for deliverance. And in Psalm 21, he celebrates the power of God which brought it. Psalm 21 celebrates the deliverance of Israel's king and the defeat of Israel's enemies. This was the way the power of God had been manifested. And so the psalmist praises God for his power because the power of God is not aloof and removed from the psalmist's life. The psalmist has experienced the power of God at work on his behalf. And this power of God in this psalm is the answer to the prayer of the previous one. Last week, I made a comment that these two psalms, Psalms 20 and 21, belong together. They should be understood alongside each other, and the relationship is like this. In Psalm 20, the psalmist makes requests, and in Psalm 21, he celebrates the answer. God has answered those prayers. Both psalms pertain to Israel's king. They're both written by Israel's king. The superscription is the same to the choir master, a psalm of David. David is the king in this case. He's written a psalm whose words are about Israel's king. Psalms that will outlast 
his own reign. Words that he and the congregation should sing about the anointed one of God, ultimately what would be the Lord Jesus himself, the son of David. We see with the language to the choir master, the reminder that these psalms are meant to be recited and sung in the assembly of the Israelites. This is not just David's diary that someone would come upon and say, isn't it interesting that this was the concern of David? This is what stood out to David. This is what David prayed for. This is for the choir master so that the concerns of David would be the concerns of the people. So that the prayers of David would be the prayers of the people. And that they would pray and celebrate the victory of God in Israel's king. How is this psalm divided? Three parts. Psalm 21. In the first seven verses there are blessings for Israel's king that are given by God. We could call these first seven verses the king's blessings, the king's blessings. And then there's a notable shift. The shift occurs. And in verses eight to twelve, the king's enemies take the foreground of the psalm. The king's blessings, the king's enemies in verses eight to twelve. One final part and the shortest of all. The third part of the psalm is one verse, verse 13. And it's a closing statement of praise. It returns us. To the opening concern of the psalm. That God's power and strength would be something to praise and exalt. The psalm opens that way. The psalm ends that way. Just as we read Psalm 20 last week in light of Christ. We will do so with Psalm 21 today. I argued that Psalm 20 is best read as a psalm. In which David and his contemporaries and all subsequent generations. Are praying for the victory of the future son of David. Not future to us. But fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a richer reading of the psalm. It makes a big difference for the interpreter to celebrate. That the king whose prayers are heard and whose defeat of enemies is to be celebrated and whose vindication and exaltation are the joy of His people. This can be truer no more so of any king that's ever lived than the Lord Jesus. And so we celebrate the victory in Psalm 21 of these answers to prayer. We look at the king's blessings. Verses 1-7. to The opening prayer is clear with the words, O Lord... The words are directed to Yahweh, and he says, O Lord, Yahweh, in your strength, the king rejoices. Which means that the king is not to be a king who is caught up in the resources and power plays of the world, but rather who depends on and looks to God. The strength of the Lord isn't something the king recoils against. Yahweh's strength is the king's joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And it's true for Israel's king. Oh, Yahweh, in your strength, the king rejoices in your salvation. How greatly he exalts. What strength or salvation or deliverance would be in view? In Psalm 20, there was a cry of deliverance for the king. That the king be delivered from his enemies, be exalted over his foes, and that his petitions for deliverance be heard. We saying here in verse 1, in your strength the king rejoices, you've brought deliverance. And he exults in that. We can't confuse the word exults with the verb exalts. They're nearly the same. 
One little vow makes all the difference. But to exalt something is to lift it up. To exult in something, E-X-U-L-T, exult in means to rejoice in. It means to find great boasting in and delight in. That means in verse 1, the king is rejoicing and exulting. It's the same idea. It's a parallelism, isn't it? So common that we see in the Old Testament poetry. The king is rejoicing. He's exulting in. What is he so animated by and for? God's power. Strength that has brought salvation. God is strong enough to save. He is mighty to deliver. That's why his strength is something to celebrate. Because there's nothing stronger than him. There's nothing that impedes his power or that in any way corrodes it. He greatly results in the salvation of the Lord. If you look at the end of Psalm 20 and the beginning of Psalm 21, notice how carefully crafted these are. At the end of Psalm 20, they pray, Oh Yahweh, save the king. So that's their prayer. That's the end of Psalm 20. How does the next psalm open? Yahweh, you did that. You saved the king. He exults in your salvation. It's fruitful in our reading of the Psalms to notice things and how the Psalms alongside one another enrich the reading of one with the other. In verse 2, the prayers of the king have been heard. No doubt this desire and request of the lips was a request for deliverance. And here he says in verse 2, to Yahweh, you have given him, the king, his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. The king here is like that Psalm 19.14 figure. In Psalm 19.14, we're told this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. This king is like that. The words of his mouth, the desire and meditation in his heart are pleasing unto God. He's not withheld from the king what the king desired. He's given it. You've given him his heart's desire. And because the Lord is righteous and altogether good and wise and never does what is evil... It must mean that the giving of the king's desire is for desires a king has that are righteous and good. This is not only a king whose joy is in the power and strength of God. His heart wants what it should want. His heart desires what it should desire. He has prayed for what is good. And God grants and gives his heart's desire the request of the king's lips. This king depends on the power of the Lord. How do we know in verse 1 that the king's rejoicing is in the strength of God? Because this king is a person of prayer. In verse 2, he has desires inwardly that conform to what is right and good. And those inward desires show up in his lips. They form requests, prayers unto God. So he rejoices in the strength of God and he depends on the power of God. And it's chiefly demonstrated in that this king is a king of prayer. So these statements in verses 1 and 2 are explained or given proof in verse 3. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. Why would a king need to be crowned? We could recognize the crowning of a king at a coronation. That's not what this is in Psalm 21. This is not the coronation of the king. This is already, this king is already king. 
Instead, this is a king that needs victory. This is a king whose refuge is the Lord. There's a different kind of crowning that can take place, though. Not at a coronation, but at a victory. You can think about a victory where at the end of some contest or competition, or at the end of a race, in the ancient Near East, these ancient games would be followed by the giving of a crown. It could be made of various things, very important and flowery plants and, and, uh, and branches like a wreath. It could be made out of valuable materials. This victory of the king is confirmed because of public honor and exaltation in verse 3. So how do we know he's not withheld the request of the king's lips? Because he's publicly exalted him over his foes. What's the proof of that? The imagery in verse 3 is, you've met him with rich blessings. Meeting him with rich blessings, it's like the competition has ended. The victory is over. The dust has settled. And the one with the crown comes down the stairs to the place of the battle and crowns the victor. So you meet him with rich blessings. Crown him upon his head. This is the the, the picture then of divine vindication and approval of public honor and acclaim. In verse 4, he asked life of you. You gave it to him. If we asked in verse 2, this desire and request of his lips, what kind of desires, what kind of requests that his life not be brought to an end? That instead his reign would go on. Kings could feel the insecurity in an earthly sense that if they died, what would happen to their kingdom? But a victory, a victory over one's enemies could at least give the impression, even if a temporal one, that your reign will continue for such a time. So what's this king desire? Well, he desires length of life. Because as the king lives, so shall his kingdom go on. As the king lives, his, his foes vanquished. The vindication of the king would be confirmed. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. But look at the end of verse 4. It's not only the granting of life and victory for the king. The end of verse 4 says, you gave it to him length of days forever and ever. Well, that's quite a statement. Length of days forever and ever. This is the kind of verse, alongside what we've seen in Psalm 20 and what we've seen as a whole in Psalm 21, that points toward, that signals toward something beyond David. David did not reign with length of days forever and ever. He died. This promise, though, this hope of victory, is something that David knows God has pledged in a covenant for someone. Consider that whenever David is writing these psalms, he does so as a king who's aware of a covenant made with him in 2 Samuel 7. And the awareness of the covenant between God and David and David's offspring is something that sheds light on verses like this. 2 Samuel 7, God promised that an offspring of David would be raised up after his days were over. And that to this son, to this future offspring, God would give the throne and the kingdom... Forever, and that that king would reign without end. And here David is celebrating the victory of a king. He's praying along with others who join him with the choir master to celebrate God bestowing victory to a king and length of days without end. And in the Davidic dynasty, that only can apply to one king, and it's the future anointed one from David's day forward, the one who would be named Jesus because he would deliver his people from their sins. 
He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Link the days forever and ever. The blessings continue in verses 5 through 7. His glory is great through your salvation. So the deliverance of the king, the salvation granted to this one, this deliverance displays glory. The glory of this king is not diminished, but rather is great. And this is nothing to be afraid of when we consider that this is ultimately about the Lord Jesus. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor, and majesty you bestow on him. Glory is something displayed. We already noticed in verse 3 that this figure in, in Psalm 21 is crowned with a crown of fine gold upon his head. That's a display of great glory. Because this victor, this one who is publicly acknowledged and celebrated, he is the one to whom allegiance is due. The one who is worthy of all of it. His glory is great. How could it be anything else? Because the power of God that brings deliverance ensures that the greatness of the anointed one and the glory of the anointed one are clear. Even the terms splendor and majesty. My goodness, what a pair of words. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. It's so regal and royal in the tone, right? You bestow that upon him. In verse 6, you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. So being blessed forever has to do with divine communion and joy. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. There's not something in this world that most satisfies this one. But knowing God and dwelling in the presence of God, you make him glad with the joy of your presence. What is it that produces gladness in this figure? Knowing God. That God himself is the source of all goodness and joy and life. So he asks for life and God grants it. Why? Because God is life. Here the presence of God is what stirs gladness within this figure. Not wickedness stirring gladness. Not sin alluring this person with worldly fleeting pleasures. It's the presence of God that makes him glad. In other words, this person rightly understands what is true of God. That to know God and to know all that there is about God that is true, His wisdom and His power and His faithfulness and His goodness and all the things we can add to that list. It produces joy and gladness in the one who comes to know God because they love that God is God. And that God being God in these ways is unchanging in who He is and will forever be the source of life and joy for His people. It thrills the souls of those who know God that this is true. So you make him most blessed forever. His blessed state is as long as his life. Forever. It's unending. Life unending, blessedness unending, knowledge of God, presence of God, gladness and joy. Gladness and joy in the presence of God. It reminds us of what we've noticed so far in book one. That there are connections among psalms, not just right next to a psalm with the previous or the following, though that's also true as we've seen so far. You can look at psalms alongside each other. But sometimes much earlier in the book, there's a particular phrase that you might recall. And what comes to mind is from Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, 
language about the future Davidic king. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. So we're talking about life and we're talking about joy and the presence of the Lord. Psalm 1611. This is reiterated for the king here in Psalm 21. You make him most blessed forever and you make him glad with the joy of your presence The king's blessings conclude with verse 7. And it's the explanation for why all of these blessings exist. What's true of the king? Well, he he looks to the Lord's strength. He prays to the Lord. His requests that come forth from his lips, from a heart that rightly desires. What's all of this based in? This is a king who trusts God. That's why he looks to God's power. That's why he prays to the Lord. That's why he is made glad in the presence of God. He trusts God. In verse 7, for the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Lord, he shall not be moved. Oh, what a promise that is. At the end of verse 7, the immovability of the king is something that you could never strategize to accomplish in the ancient world. All of the mighty armies and all of the formidable kings, they've all been moved. This king, in verse 7, trusts in Yahweh. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Steadfast love is covenant language. It's covenant language that connects us once again to the life of David. Why is it that David knows that this king will not be moved? And what I want to point you to is again, 2 Samuel 7, David believes God's promises and covenant. That if God has formed a covenant that the offspring of David will be enthroned forever. You know what David says then about his future son? He shall not be moved. Why? Because God is not wrong. God will not make a promise and then someone break it. God will not form a covenant and then someone dissolve it. Rather, instead, God forms this covenant and will faithfully keep it. And the king promised shall not be moved. Which means that if he shall not be moved, his enemies must be moved. So the security of the king is good news for the people of the king. Wouldn't we long to belong to an everlasting kingdom? To one who is lifted high and crowned with all glory and splendor and majesty. And whose power and wisdom and righteousness are unrivaled and untainted and pure and holy. Friends, this is the Lord Jesus. And he shall not be moved, but oh, his enemies. Verses 8 through 12 mention the king's enemies. The king's blessings, verses 1 to 7. The king's enemies, verses 8 to 12. Your hand will, lay, will find out all your enemies. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. His hand finding out is a, is a picture of searching carefully through something. You ever found this pile of things and you're like, all right, the only way to to get that is to get my hands into it. I'm going to find what I'm looking for. And you might give up after a while. You might be like, well, it's not here or I can't find it or I'm just tired of searching. And so you just, you know, move on to the next thing. This is to say in verse eight that his hand will search out and find and rightly identify all of his enemies. It's this image of being unable to hide from the judgment of the Lord. It's this picture of inescapability. 
If the king shall not be moved, then this is bad news for all the enemies of Yahweh, because his hand shall find them out. The enemies of God, in verse 8, the first line, are described in a parallel phrase in the second line. The enemies are called those who hate you. Think about that for a moment. What is it that makes one an enemy of God? The answer in this second line is their wrong heart toward God. That's what produces an enmity. A hostility between the life of the sinner and God. Their heart toward God is not what it should be. They don't desire God. They don't love God. They don't worship God. They hate God. And then they might not put it that way. I hate God in those three words so clearly. They want nothing to do with his word. They pursue what is idolatrous and self-exalting. And they live in rebellion against God. Friend, that is hatred of God. The Bible wants to help us put the clearest label on what it is. Because some sinners would just resist that. And they might think, well, I don't, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't hate God. You're calling me an enemy of God just because I'm not a Christian? Just because I'm not pursuing the kingdom of Christ? Friend, to live in rebellion against God is to have a heart of rejection of the king. And the Bible is saying that that is hatred. It is a hatred of God, and you're not smarter than the Bible. We need to believe what the Scripture says and repent of wickedness and pursue God as our only refuge. There's no refuge from God outside of His mercy. Outside of His mercy, you will find only judgment upon sinners. His right hand will find out all His enemies. He's not going to find 50% of them. He's not going to find the overwhelming majority Rather, all the enemies of God are known by God, will be held account by God. His right hand shall not fail. So your only refuge is in his mercy. Come to Christ. Come to Christ where sinners are welcomed. Refuge in God himself. The one who is the righteous judge, who rightly condemns the wicked, will not condemn those who come to him. Don't be one who hates God. Don't be one who lives in enmity with God and hostility toward God. Repent of sin and flee to Christ. The promise for the king's enemies in verse 9, you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The imagery of a blazing oven, it's also synonymous with this picture of a fiery furnace. So picture fiery furnace or blazing oven. Something that is inserted into the oven in order to be consumed. You will make them as a blazing oven. A blazing oven, that is a picture of judgment, like a fiery furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. I think this is figurative language here to describe the fury of God's judgment that will hold the wicked to account and to condemn them while the righteous are vindicated. Now, the Old Testament tells the story of an actual fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, which is interesting to consider. Because in Daniel chapter 3... Those who persisted in their love of God and refused to bow the knee to the golden image were cast into the fiery furnace and they were not consumed. The three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were delivered from the fiery furnace and those who opposed and those who put in and those who accused, those were consumed by the fiery furnace in Daniel 3. In other words, the judgment of God is rightly applied In a way that preserves his people and overcomes the wicked. 
Malachi chapter 4 ends this. In our ordering of the Old Testament, we see in Malachi chapter 4, the very last chapter of the Old Testament ordering. In Malachi 4.1, we read, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble, and the day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, and it will leave them neither root nor branch. I'm, gonna, I'm thinking that Malachi 4 could be alluding to Psalm 21. Imagery of a burning or blazing oven in which the wicked will be consumed. And what's interesting in Malachi 4.1 is that they will have no progeny. They will have no, uh, no, none that come after them. It's like the generation of the seed of the serpent are brought to an end. They will have neither root nor branch. A branch is something that extends from. It's what would be the next or subsequent generation of. And if you imagine then the, the seed of the serpent being held to final and perfect judgment by the God who is altogether righteous. He's saying he's putting an end to the future maladies and mischief of the wicked in their plans against the Lord. They're, gonna, they're not going to have more and more generations beyond that final judgment. But instead, the wicked will be brought to account. One of the reasons that Psalm 21 could be alluding to Malachi 4 is that the next verse, in verse 10 here, pictures not only the blazing oven and the consuming of the wicked in verse 9, you will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. So just as Malachi 4 talks about a burning oven and the end of the wicked and none that will come after them, Psalm 21, written by David, talks about the same thing. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. I think it has to do with the spiritual seed, spiritual offspring. The descendants of the wicked, spiritually speaking, would be more to live out the seed of the serpent posture. The offspring would be those who are the seed of the serpent to live in their rebellion against God. And he says here, they will not, that will not happen. Their descendants and their offspring, you will bring to an end the seed of the serpent. This is a hope for the people of God. Because this tells us that the righteousness of God will not be matched by or exceeded by evil designs against the Lord and his people. But rather the final triumph of God is a hope for the people in Psalm 21. Malachi 4 seems to be alluding to that. And Malachi 4, 1, which the Lord Jesus will accomplish. And the reason we're thinking about the Lord Jesus as his appearing and the judgment of the wicked is that's the way the Psalms open. Psalms 1 and 2 are the lens through which the rest of the Psalms should be read. And in Psalm 1, the righteous stand before the Lord and not the wicked. They're like chaff. They're like chaff blown away by the wind. We might say consumed in the oven, the blazing oven, the image in Psalm 21.9. In Psalm 2, part of that opening lens for the book, the two spectacles through which to read the Psalms, Psalms 2, Psalm 2 is about the anointed one who will reign over the nations of the earth with the rod of iron and his perfect justice. This in Psalm 21 is the application of perfect justice by the future son of David. In verse 11, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. You see, what is it that their hearts want? Why is it that we would say they are enemies of Yahweh? That their hearts are off base and that their, their ruptured and fractured spiritual state is manifested in this enmity toward God? What are they about? 
in verse 11, they plan evil. In other words, they deliberate on, intend to commit, and follow through on wickedness. That's what they want. They don't long to please the Lord or live for the glory of God or delight in the word of God. They want nothing to do with that. That gets in the way of their evil mischief. What they're committed to is what their desires give birth toward. Birth to. They plan evil. They devise mischief. They will not succeed. Meaning that the wicked are not sovereign. The wicked make plans that are evil against the anointed one, but God triumphs over them in verse 12. Why will they not succeed? Verse 12 says, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. This is divine warrior imagery. The victory of God is being depicted here as something that intimidates and terrifies the wicked. In verse 12, you will put them to flight, which means they leave as quickly as possible. They turn tail and run. Why is it that they leave and don't face full on this divine warrior? Because he aims at their faces with his bows. It's a picture here of a, a whole army of archers. And they are aimed at the wicked. And the wicked know they cannot withstand the strength and power of what is right in front of them. So the Lord puts them to flight. In other words, they do not look at this situation when they are face to face with the holiness and righteousness and power of God. And, you know, sort of dust their hands and say, don't worry, we've got this. They flee. As if they could ultimately anyway. The Lord's hand will find out all his enemies in verse 8. They cannot flee successfully. But they will tremble in fear before the Lord, whose divine righteousness and judgment will frustrate their plans and bring them to an end. This aiming of bows at their faces will make them want to run. We've seen the king's blessings in verses 1 to 7, the king's enemies in verses 8 to 12. The last part of the psalm is the climax that brings us back to the opening concern. Verse 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. It tells us in verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. But see, it's not just the king that rejoices. We will sing and praise your power. That's the last line. David's psalms are those which should be echoed and, and, and uh, that people come alongside with, like the choir master term indicates in the superscription. We will sing and praise your power. See, it's not just David that's to call upon the Lord. As goes the king, so goes the people. And the king is to set an example and to be one who embodies the victory of Yahweh. Prayer to God, confidence in God, trust in God, delight in his word. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. You know, the people who would be victorious in David's day are not celebrating that this strength is ultimately from David himself. Whose strength is being exalted? The strength of Yahweh. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. They are celebrating that the victory comes from the Lord. This is what the Psalms teach. This is what the book of Jonah teaches. Salvation is from the Lord. We will sing and praise your power. There's a communal tone to that, isn't there? A corporate reality of the people of God recognizing this to be true and joining in song and praise. It's not just something we mouth with our words, but ought to be artfully and eagerly proclaimed in praise unto God. We want God to be lifted up and exalted in song, praising God for his power. 
When the psalm opens and ends this way, we're seeing that this is the answer to the prayer of Psalm 20. I argued last week that the meaning of Psalm 20 is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. The Psalm 20 is a prayer for David's greater son, the Messiah, and it belongs with this morning's passage. Psalm 21 anticipates the Lord Jesus in this prayer. Jesus is the rejoicing king of verse 1. He's the praying king in verse 2 whose prayers are perfectly heard. He's the ruler publicly crowned and vindicated in verse 3. He's the Davidic king with length of days forever and ever in verse 4. Because the Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's the king in verse 5 who possesses great glory and splendor and majesty bestowed upon him. He's the one in verse 6 who's blessed forever. The one glad with divine joy. He's the king in verse 7 who shall not be moved. Because not only is he risen from the dead. He has been exalted in the heavens, seated at the right hand of God, ascended with all authority in heaven and on earth. That's not someone you can move. This is a position of such unrivaled victory and such security that if we are in Christ, the fact that he shall not be moved is really good news for us in him. Amen. In verses 8 through 12. We see God's enemies defeated by his power. Not only is the king worthy of all allegiance with all power and authority that he possesses, his enemies will be brought to account at the righteous judgment. And in the New Testament, we learn that this is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. For now he has ascended to heaven, but will return from heaven with power and glory and might. He will resurrect his people. He will overcome the wicked. In verses 8 to 12, the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ will find out all his enemies. There is nowhere they can flee. The only refuge is in his mercy and they have spurned him. He will appear in the flaming fury of divine justice and he will consume his adversaries. All, all of their evil plans will fail. Their resistance is futile. New Testament commentators will suggest Psalm 21 here as a background to Paul's language to the Thessalonians. Because Paul talked about the return of Christ with such power and fiery fury and blazing glory that brings about the destruction of the enemies of God. Not only is that a paramount concern in Psalm 21, it may lie behind these words in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. His second letter. In 2 Thessalonians 1, the Apostle Paul says, God will grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And they'll suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Who is the divine judge? Paul is interpreting this to be the Lord Jesus At his return, Christ will vanquish his enemies. He will deliver his people. So you know what we should do? Is we should join David and the saints throughout the ages who read Psalm 21 and celebrate what God has done in Christ. We praise the Lord. The power of God displayed in our lives. The one who has kept his promises, who is perfect in all wisdom, and who is altogether good and not unrighteous, but his power, his power is unmatched in all the earth. He can take 
those dead in their trespasses and sins and say to them, let there be life. And he can bring spiritual life to their dead hearts. We can bring testimonies in this very room this morning of how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And behold, the power of God. The power of God that forgives and pardons transgression. We can say, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. What kind of strength? The strength that brings us from darkness to light. We didn't have enough power to do that. But behold the strength of the Lord. And may God be exalted in his strength exercised toward us. For while we had been in the kingdom of darkness and dead in our sins, he's brought us to life and brought us into the light of his beloved son, into his everlasting kingdom. Behold the power of God. We think of the power of God when we think about the cross. We think about power, power, wonder-working power. That's what Baptists like to sing. We think about the blood of the Lamb and the power of God that brings our sins to a cross where the one who is without sin bears them in our stead and we are cleansed by the power of the blood of the Lamb. Oh, we, we exalt God for His strength and power. For God does for sinners what we cannot do for ourselves. So we say, come to know Christ and know His power to forgive sin. And know of Christ this truth. He shall not be moved. His enemies shall be. So be found in Christ. Flee to Christ. That we shall not be moved in Him. Let's stand together as we pray.